Hello, everybody. It's us, the So Scared Podcast. Uh, this is part three, I almost said four. This is part three of Illegal Blues. Yeah. Uh, intro music. Joined by Kitty, my wife, as always. We're together here still. Uh, yeah, doing Illegal Foods Part 3. Uh, just so you know, I had a lot of troubles researching this because I procrastinate and I'm bad at doing things. And so each Illegal Foods episode generally was, what was it, supposed to be? Six. Each one's supposed to be six. Remember? The first two both had six. This one's supposed to have six food items. Fourth part was supposed to have six food items. But I got up to five. I had one more to research. But today is Sunday the 23rd. Uh, actually, technically it's 1235, so now we're on Monday the 24th. And I wanted this up episode to be uploaded by the 24th, which is now today. And I was like, well, instead of putting six in this episode, we only have five. And the sixth one is going to be added to part four. So part four will have seven food items instead of six. And this one has five instead of four. But the last two are technically lumped together. So really, this one only has four instead of six. And the next one will have seven. So. Nice. Yeah. That's a lot. But yeah, we're back. Uh, it's a solid promo. What do you got to promo, honey? I have an earring business. Um, I'm also selling art there and, um, like possibly kind of crafty home decor type items. I made a shelf, um, at home with no tools, uh, just my hands. It's a coffin shelf and I love it. Um, it's called Whimsical Formations. You can find me on Facebook. Um, yeah. Make everything myself at my home. So it's all handmade if you want to support myself. Also, um, Colin does some art too, so I might sell theirs on my like store sometimes too. So Yeah. Yeah. I'll put a link in the description for that. Uh, also, promo for me. Uh, for one thing, I mean, I still have my YouTube channel. That I haven't posted any real gaming videos on in like over a year, but I might start soon, maybe. So keep an eye out on that. Uh, other thing, next week is Halloween. So I just want to let you know we're going to have a special for Halloween, but also maybe huh, I'm doing the mouth like Dr. Evil thing. Ooh, ooh, ooh. 
maybe in the two days leading up to Halloween, we might have something special going up on this channel, on this feed. So keep your eye out if you like spooky things. <laughs> Completely original spooky things from us. Um, as well, I might have some secret new project coming out eventually, soon. Uh, if I do, you'll get a trailer on here. I'm not going to tell you what it is. Haha. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, any other, I don't know. That's, that's it for promoing now. Um, note before we get into the podcast, if you hear, like, whining in the background, that's our dog snoring. Yes, uh, we'll, I'll have us post a picture of him on the Instagram, but he is completely passed out on the couch right now while we record. He is asleep, and he is, I mean, he's a French bulldog. He can't breathe well, so he's, he's, you know, snoring. It's like, sounds like that. A lot. But we can get into it. We're starting off. What are your thoughts? Illegal food. What do you think is going to show up in this episode? I feel like I might have seen what you were researching at one point, but I do not remember. So it's fresh. Yeah. Um, I feel like I'm probably going to be grossed out. Probably going to be a little bit upset because I love animals so much. So. There's definitely a... Uh... We're going to start off on the first one as one that's probably going to upset you. I think I talked to you about it a bit when I was researching, but when I first was researching this episode, it was like a couple months ago, so you've probably forgotten. Yes, my memory is very bad. Yeah. So, uh, we'll just get into it. Man, wow, we spent five minutes just talking? Ugh. I'm joking. There's podcasts I listen to where it's like literally takes like 20 minutes for them to get into like what they're doing the show about. We aren't that bad. Not us, though. Yeah, because we live together. We have no, uh, like, small talk to really do with each other because we know everything about each other's lives, so no small talk. All right, uh, we'll get into it. Just jump straight in. Number one, first food item, foie gras. Oh, yeah. Or if you pronounce it the way it's spelled... Foie grass. But, you know, French, they can't pronounce things the way it looks. So, fragua. Frag, fragua. Fragua? Fragua. Fragua. It's a French delicacy. Uh, it's French for fat liver because it's made of the liver of a duck. It's made of the liver of a duck or a goose. Specifically, according to French law, it's the liver of a duck or goose that's been fattened in a process called gavage, which um, I'll get into gavage and what that is in a second. Uh, the taste of foie gras. I've never had it. I don't ever want to have it. But it's described as rich, buttery, delicate, and I guess the fattened pros fattening process makes the liver different from, like, normal liver. Uh, side note, Matt Pat on Film Theory, Film Theory on YouTube just did a video about how the uh, gray stuff in the original Beauty and the Beast movie, uh, his theory is that that's uh, foie gras, but because of the stuff we're going to get into about why foie gras is bad, Disney tried to distance themselves from it being foie gras and decided to be like, oh, nope, it's some kind of dessert. 
That's like cookies and cream, pudding, mousse yeah. stuff. But no, it was foie gras, and Disney was just too scared to admit it. Mm, cowards. Uh, foie gras can be prepared as a mousse, a parfait, a pâté, or is just served as a side. Yeah, uh, pâté. Yeah, pâté. Mm, that's just human cat food. <laughs> Ew. That's gross. Yeah, this doesn't sound tasty to me at all. I don't get it. Okay, so gavage. Uh, we're gonna talk about history and get into what gavage is. Uh, and we're gonna learn about force feeding. No. Uh, so, gavage is force feeding by inserting a tube either through the nose or mouth into the stomach, which has been used both on humans and animals, which, uh, I put in my notes that I might actually look into maybe doing a whole episode on force feeding humans. Who knows? Yeah. so, animals. So excited for that. Uh, the history, well, it goes back to 2500 BC in ancient Egypt, which is way back there, uh, where they figured out that if you force fed birds, you could get them extra fattened. Uh, whoever first figured that out, uh, what? <laughs> why? What were you doing and why did you figure that out? Like, Well, that's what we do with animals now. Yeah. All, like, it's like, I'm, ta- I'm talking about how gross, like, it, I don't like the idea of force feeding, but it's like, I eat meat, no matter, like, even though I'm upset at myself for it. Um, and it's, that's what we do with every single animal we eat now. So, it's gross to me, but it's like, that's, that's what, that's what we do. Like chickens. The force feeding done back then in Egypt was, I believe the process was more that they moistened food and then they would just shove the food by hand into the bird's mouths because they didn't have like the ability to do the tube thing. Uh, and I believe, from what I researched, I believe that it is still done today in that way in Egypt in some places, but not like on commercial farms. I believe it's just more like smaller Small. This obviously isn't specifically gavage, because gavage is feeding ducks and geese with tubes, but this is kind of where force-feeding birds started, and from this, it spread to the Mediterranean, uh, and in the earliest reference is by Greek poet Cratinus in the 5th century BC, and then also from the Spartan king Agesilas, who mentioned it after visiting Egypt in 361 BC, but foie gras wasn't mentioned until the Roman Empire. Pliny the Elder credited Marcus Gavius Apicius, gosh, <laughs> with feeding dried fish to geese to enlarge the liver, and also Emperor Elagabalus fed his dogs foie gras. During his four-year reign, which that is so extra, feeding your dogs foie gras. Rosie, cut this out. Uh, all right. I don't even know when Rosie. Rosie was scratching the scratching post, so if you heard it in the background, but yeah, what? Dude fed foie gras to his dogs. Like, come on, just like buy dog food. They didn't have that back. 
No. They just probably fed them. They, well, they fed them scraps. I feel like that, well, yeah. yeah. They fed them scraps of, like, like what they what didn't want to eat. But foie gras is not over. scraps. That's, no. like, intentionally making that just for your dogs. Yeah. <laughs> Extra. Also, a lot of Roman luxury cuisine was inspired by the Greeks, so this could have came from Hellenistic Alexandria. But yeast liver eventually disappeared from European cuisine after the fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, medieval French peasant main food source were pigs and sheep instead. Uh, there are also a couple of ideas here on how foie gras was preserved. Uh, for, because, like, you know, they kind of stopped using geese, so it's like, for, like, years. No geese. So why did they still know how to make foie gras much later on? First idea is that rural Gallic farmers, which when I first read this, I thought that was Gaelic. It's not Gaelic. It's Gallic, which is an area in Europe that's like right in France. Uh, preserved the tradition. Uh, Gallic farmers were, yeah, they were from the Gaul region, which was most of Western Europe. Uh, essentially, uh, just they kept the tradition for centuries until the rest of Europe rediscovered foie gras from them. Uh, the other idea was that foie gras was preserved by the Jewish people and that they learned this method of enlarging goose liver either from the Romans during Roman colonization of Judea or from the Egyptians before that. So we might know about foie gras still either because of the people in Gaul, or because the Jewish people learned about it and they kept the tradition. So, like, one of those two. Or maybe both. Maybe a mixture. Who knows? We don't. Uh, so, according to Ju- Judaic dietary law, they couldn't use lard or butter as cooking mediums. Uh, my notes. Okay, they couldn't use lard or butter as cooking mediums. For Jewish cuisine in the Mediterranean, they used olive oil, and in Babylonia, they used sesame oil. However, neither of those were easily available in Western and Central Europe. However, they figured out that by overfeeding yeast, they could produce more than enough poultry fat that they could use, and eventually also learned that the livers tasted good too. So, there's an idea that them trying to figure out how to cook food, have a cooking medium, they just figured out that they could make poultry fat, and then foie gras, the large liver, was just pretty much a byproduct of them making that, so that they could throw Some rabbis were concerned and thought that force-feeding yeast went against their food restrictions. However, there were other rabbis that argued that no limbs were damaged and that the yeast didn't feel pain, so it was okay. Which, how do you prove how that the How do you know goose... the geese weren't feeling pain? You're force-feeding the thing. Yeah, like, come on. Like, and this is, like, centuries, many, many, many centuries ago. They did not have any way of figuring out... That was really loud. Many centuries ago. They did not have any way of, like, knowing, like, oh, yeah, this isn't feeling pain. Like, they have no way of testing that. They just yeah. were, like... They just were assuming. Yeah, they just assumed. But either way, eventually, uh, Jewish people lost a taste for geese liver, due in part because they couldn't have blood in the food, in their food, and livers are mostly blood, 
Oh. So they had to boil, broil, broil with an R, the foie gras, to remove all the blood. And this was difficult to do properly. Obviously, they didn't stop eating it completely. There are restaurants in Israel that serve foie gras, and they eat chopped liver. It just used to be more common than it is now, it seems. Uh, all of that to say, people stopped eating geese and foie gras, but the tradition was kept by the Gallic or the Jewish people, and eventually it was brought back to public attention. Uh, there's a lot more about this. Uh, there's uh, different forms of foie gras, production uh, stuff like that, but I'm not going to talk about any of that stuff. I'm just going to talk about how the process of garbage and its legality. So the process... Gosh, I, went, I put down a lot of stuff. It starts with pre-feeding. There's free, three phases to pre-feeding. For one to 28 days, old birds, the young birds are housed in large indoor groups. Second, 28 to 63 days old birds are moved outside to feed on grass. They are also given limited access to feed. Uh, this is take, to take advantage of the natural dilation of the esophagus and then from 63 to 90 days old, the birds are slowly brought inside more and more. Uh, being fed a high starch diet, they are fed meals that gradually increase in amounts of foods. Next is the feeding phase, which is called gavage for ducks. It lasts 12 to 15 days. For geese, it's 15 to 18 days. Ducks are fed twice a day and geese three times a day because they're bigger. Mm -hmm. The food is a mixture of 53% dry food and 47% liquid by weight, and how much they are fed each meal is determined by what stage in the feeding process they are, the bird's weight, and how much they were fed last meal. But generally, at the start, they are fed about 18 ounces a day, and by the end, they're fed almost 70 ounces per day. They are fed using a funnel with a log, long tube on it, they put in the bird's throat, and they feed directly into the esophagus. They try to avoid causing injury or death, but studies have shown that the walls of the proventriculus, which is the beginning of the digestive process, gets inflamed by the first feeding, and that the esophagus gets inflamed in the later stages of forced feeding. Also, that the mortality rate can be increased by gavage, so essentially, this process can and does harm birds somewhat and makes them die more often than if you just didn't do this to them. Well, yeah. Obviously. <laughs> After all this, the ducks are killed at 100 days old and geese at 112 days old. And by this time, the liver is 6 to 10 times its normal size. Aww. And that's... That's the normal preparation for our gras. And I saw pictures of the boar birds being force-fed, and it was icky, and I didn't like it. The force-feeding is controversial. Obviously, a lot of people don't like it. I don't like it. And here are a few more signs that it's bad for birds. For one, uh, fear. The birds show an aversion to the person who does the feeding, like they are afraid of them and the proce procedure. Uh, it can't be proven that this is because of the feeding, but I mean, like, if somebody does something like this to the bird, and then the bird is 
acting like they're afraid of the person, like, seems kind of obvious that it's because of the feeding that the birds are upset. Yeah. Um, there are a few things that an animal is scared of that's good for it. There are few. There are few things that an animal is scared of that's good for it. Because I mean, like, you can take your dog to the vet and they'll be scared. And it's like, but this is good for you. But it's like, no. Most of the time, if an animal acts like this and it's scared of something, it's probably because it's not good for them. Injury. Uh, we've already touched on it a bit, but studies have shown that there is tissue damage caused by cavage. And then stress. They uh, studied some birds going through it and found both at the beginning and end of the process. Uh, increased panting and an increase in serum corticosterone levels, indicating indicating increased stress due to force feeding. There's more with how they're caged, uh, sometimes being kept in small cages alone in darkness, and ducks are social, social creatures, so that's not good for them. They can't bathe, they can't flap their wings. And these cages uh, can sometimes cause lesions on their sternum. Uh, other countries do stuff like this too, obviously. Like we talked about America with our food stuff. But I mean, just because other countries do some bad things doesn't mean this is okay. Uh, along with the animal cruelty aspect, there's also a possible slight risk to certain people. Because as the bird overeats and gets stressed, it causes a buildup of proteins, and they gather together in amyloids, and it's hypothesized that eating these can cause amyloidosis, uh, and there's a lot of different symptoms and problems, uh, and it can cause this in people with inflammatory issues. And there are some places that produce foie gras more ethically by timing the slaughter of the birds around their migration season when they naturally fatten up. So rather than force feeding them, you wait for the bird to fatten itself up the way it normally would in nature and then getting the liver. Um, so that's a little bit of a better way. Uh, a lot of places have bans and restrictions on foie gras, uh, and spe specifically in America, only one state, at the time of me researching this, only one state has a ban on foie gras made by force feeding, and that's California. But also New York City is prohibiting it as well, and that's it in America. Wow. And that's partially why I put this one as the first one. Because I wanted to make sure that if people halfway through this were like, I'm not interested in this anymore, stop listening, that at least they would hear this. Because there's a group in America that's planning to go state by state to get the state governments to make laws prohibiting the sale and production of foie gras by force feeding. It's Animal Equality. Uh, you can check them out at animalequality.org. Um, they've done this in other countries and I support this, and if you two too, do too, there is a petition. I'll put a link in the petition to the, the... I'll put a link to the petition in the description. I've already signed it, and I think that if you listen to this and you don't like the idea of force-feeding birds, um, you should probably go sign it as well. I checked it out before like, just today, they're still trying to get signatures on this prescription. 
petition. They want 70,000, uh, like, signatures. signatures, and I, they're almost to, like, 60,000, so they're very close. So, yeah, I think that's good. I just want to make sure that was out there first for people to know about it. What do you think? About which part? I don't know, just all of it, in general. Foie gras, the French them doing weird stuff to birds again. They need to stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, literally, like, third episode, I'm pretty sure all three episodes so far it ha- has had the French doing weird things to birds or some kind of animal. French need to stop. Yeah. Weirdos. They need to go touch the grass. <laughs> yeah. Losers. Oh, I, I keep seeing that meme where it's like a French person spitting out coke, and it's like, first French man to taste coke, and then somebody's like, oh, this does not taste like piss and cigarettes. Ugh, disgusting. And I'm like, yeah, fucking French people. I hope we don't have many listeners in France. I love the French, as long as you don't stuff and overfeed birds for some reason. Or eat tiny little birds whole with one bite. Like that one episode that we talked about. What are you, an owl? Are you going to poop out the bones? Weirdos. I would like to visit France, though. Same. <laughs> not eating any of that, though. We won't let you know who we are when we visit. That way you can't be mad at us. We'll, so, we'll be able to tell an American, though. Yeah. Wee wee. Alright, next one is the Queen Conch. The Conch Shell. Uh, the queen conch is a species of large sea snail. It's one of the largest mollusks native to the Caribbean Sea and tropical northwest Atlantic uh, from Bermuda to Brazil. They are herbivores. They hang out in seagrass beds and they scavenge for decaying plant matter. Uh, the way they look, uh, they're a big shell with knobby spines on the shoulders and a thick flared outer lip of the shell and a pink or orange opening of the shell. The shell is a sandy color to help it blend into its environment. Um, essentially, I have a shell, a conch shell. Uh, essentially, when you think of a big, typical seashell that you hear the ocean in, um, it pretty much looks like that, just with more pointy parts sticking out. Uh, and you can tell how old they are by how big the flared lip at the opening is. The thicker the lip, the older it is. Because after they grow to their maximum length, which is about 12 inches, uh, although there have been reported lengths of almost 14 inches, but the outside of the shell starts growing thicker, so the thicker the shell it has, the older it is. The actual fleshy part that sticks out of the shell has a long snout, two eye stalks, little tentacles for touching around, and basic snail things. Also, its eyes can regenerate if they get cut off. Um, its predators are some large species of predatory sea snails, octopus, uh, starfish, crustaceans, and fish, sea turtles, and nurse sharks. That's all of its predators. Uh, with it being especially important in the diet of sea turtles and nurse sharks, and also humans have been eating them for a very long time. 
Uh, the queen conch was first discovered, discovered, quote-unquote, white man discovered, probably, in 1758 by the same guy that came up with the binomial nomenclature, uh, scientific, which is the scientific name. So the guy that came up with the scientific name for naming animals and stuff, uh, he, he found the queen conch. Carl Linnaeus. In the early 1900s, the shell that the original description was based on was missing, which made a problem for taxonomists, which are people that study the naming and defining of animals based on characteristics. Uh, essentially, when new species are defined, the first one that the description is based on are the holotype, and those are normally kept in museums or other collections. However, if a holotype is lost or destroyed, they designate a neotype, which is just another specimen from that species that is used as the base for that species and kept in a museum or something. I did a lot of reading about taxonomy so I could understand all that. Did all that make sense? Okay. So... Because the original holotype was missing, in 1941, William J. Clench and R. Tucker Abbott chose a neotype, and in this case, instead of using a shell or specimen, they used a figure from the 1684 book. I'm rusty at Latin, so mind my pronunciation. Recreatio mentis et ocula. The first book solely about seashells. Uh, but Linnaeus's original collection was found in 1953, so 12 years after they chose the neotype, and in that collection was the original shell, the holotype. So they just used that instead, making the whole neotype thing that they did pointless. Uh, there are a lot of other things that happened involving the taxonomy and scientific naming of the Queen Conch, but I didn't feel like teaching myself and then explaining so much about taxonomy just so it'd all be understandable. There was so many words that I did not fully understand, and to understand it, I would have pretty much had to teach myself a lot of taxonomy. I did not feel like it. Yes. So I didn't do it. Uh, so let's just jump into the talking about the uses of the Queen Conch. Starting with the shell, it's used now as a souvenir and decoration, but historically, it's been used by Native Americans and indigenous Caribbean peoples to make tools, jewelry, cookware, and horns. Also, Aztecs used them in jewelry mosaics and made trumpets out of them, which they used in religious ceremonies. The shell was also used in ceremonies by the Maya, except in these ceremonies, it was used as hand protection in combat like boxing gloves. So, like I said, it being discovered in the 1700s is white people discovering it. It was a big part of a lot of indigenous people's cultures for a long time before white people discovered it. So, uh, Of course, European explorers found the conch shells and took them to Europe, and in late 17th centuries, they became fairly popular de decorations continuing the tradition of white people taking things that are important to cultures and their ceremonies and turning those things into tourist souvenirs and decorations. And as I said, it's still used as decorations today. I have
have a conch shell in our house right now as a decoration. So we'll jump into the eating of it. Uh, it's been eaten for a long time, centuries, and conch meat is an important part of the diet in the West Indies and Southern Florida. There are a few ways it's eaten, such as just raw, oh. uh, marinated, minced, or chopped in dishes like salads, chowders, fritters, soups, stew, pâtés, again, and other local recipes. A chowder doesn't sound bad to me. I'd eat it. But with the sea smell on it. Yeah, I mean, it's like similar to clam no. chowder. Ew. Clam chowder's good. No. If it's a good clam chowder. Not the clam chowder from Village Inn. Because I worked at Village Inn and I did not like their clam chowder. Uh, no clam chowder. It's gross. Uh, the meat is often known as lambai. I hope I pronounced that right. And can also be used as fishing bait. In the Caribbean, it's one of the most important fishery resources with its harvest value being $60 million in 2003, although the amount of queen conch harvested has been declining since. The annual harvest between 1993 and 98 was about 7,000,000 kilograms, which is about 15.5 million pounds. That dropped to almost 3 million kilograms, which is about 6.5 million pounds by 2001. So it's been... The amount we harvest has been going down by a lot, which is good. Well, unless the reason is because we can't find them. Yeah. That's not good. Uh, and although I couldn't find exact numbers, I believe it's declined even more since then. So obviously we're talking about it because its importation is regulated in America. And that has to do with its status. Although it's not on the endangered list right now, at the time of me researching this, it was being reviewed for being endangered, and that's because their numbers have declined for have been declining for a long time. And that's caused by overfishing or it not being sustainably fished. One of the reasons for this is because there's almost the same amount of meat in adults as there is in large juveniles. So when fishing for the queen conch, sometimes they'll grab juveniles, especially in areas where there are no adults available due to the overfishing. And this is a problem because only the adults can reproduce, so they're getting caught before they're given the chance to mate and reproduce. Obviously that's bad. The only place in the U.S. the queen conch is found is in Florida, and it's illegal to fish for them for any reason, but it is legal to fish for them in other countries, and in most of these countries, it's only legal to fish adults, that way to give them time to mate. But of course, like with other animals that are regulated, there are people that don't follow the laws, and that's because, like I said, some areas don't just don't have access to adults, and it would be too long to wait for them to grow old enough to reproduce because they're too much of a major part of the economy and stuff. So, like, they're so important to their economy, they can't afford to wait for them to grow old enough to reproduce. They have to catch them while they're young because that's their only option. Can you shut up, laptop? You should put some in, like, um, what's it called? Uh, 
fisheries or like no, aquariums? Like, um, what's it called when you have like a sanctuary? Sanctuary. Yeah. So that they're they can reproduce and then maybe like slowly reintroduce them back into like living in the ocean. Because like I don't well I don't know how you do that, but like I don't know. Just like take some let them reproduce and then like release the babies. But like I also feel like doing that would just be like when you if you like take in like a some people take in like wild animals and then they try to release them back and they can't because now they're domesticated. Yeah. So I don't know how that would work, but I don't know like I don't like would they become domesticated and not know how to like live in the ocean? Like if we did that? Yeah, I don't know if conches are like able to be domesticated. Well like it was what I'm saying is if we release them into the ocean and then they go back in there they don't know how to defend themselves or they don't know like what to, how to hunt yeah. or eat. And I know that you said that they eat plants, but, like, they don't know, like, what plants... Like, they don't know how to decipher between the plants uh, that are good for them and not, you know? Possibly. Yeah, I don't know. It's 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 a, definitely a job and a problem for people who spend a lot more time researching this to decide, but, like, yeah, like, I feel like they should do something like that to help prevent them from going endangered. But yeah, I agree. In 2019, they did a study and predicted that overfishing could lead to the extinction of the quinconch in as little as 10 years. So very soon. Uh, another threat to the quinconch is also ocean, ocean acidification. Essentially, rising CO2 in the atmosphere increases the level of carbonic acid in seawater, which causes the water to be more acidic, and a lower pH level is harmful to certain selfish shellfish in their larval stage, and that includes the queen conch. So, this is obviously bad for the queen conch, but also it's just bad in general. That's the... That's... Yeah. So, along with us overfishing them, also us destroying the environment by causing too much CO2 in the atmosphere is also killing which is also our fault. So both ways, it's humans' fault. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. That's Queen Conch. Uh, although it's not illegal to have them in the U.S., the only way to get it here is through importation, which is highly regulated and limited to only importing from a few Caribbean countries that have sustainable fisheries, but it's still overfished and in unsustainable ways in other places, and if it continues, it will go extinct. That's Queen Conch. Good. Great. Yeah. Next. Uh, so we're halfway through now. Next is the Chilean sea bass, which technically refers to two different fish. The Chilean sea bass is the market name in Canada and the U.S. for both the Patagonian toothfish and the Antarctic toothfish. Two different fish, but in Canada and U.S., on the market, they're both called Chilean sea bass. This really confused me when I first started researching this. Uh, both of them are found by the most southern part of South America near Antarctica. They're cold fish. Not a lot to say about them, really. They're fish with teeth. That's what a toothfish is. They're both toothfish. They just have teeth. That's it. But the reason they're known as Chilean sea bass 
Well, there are, seems to be two reasons. One was that the first time these fish were sold in America, they were brought, they were brought and sold by Chilean people. The second reason is because in 1977, a fish wholesaler named Lee Lentz wanted to give them a name to make them easier to sell in America, because I guess he didn't think people would want to buy something called a toothfish. Uh, so a couple other names he thought of were Pacific sea bass and South American sea bass. Um, Chilean sea bass was accepted as the alternative market name for the Patagonian toothfish by the FDA in 1994 and for the Antarctic toothfish in 2013. But in Singapore, the Patagonian toothfish is marketed as a type of cod, and in the UK, both the Patagonian and the Antarctic toothfish are sold as toothfish or ice fish, but actually ice fish found in sub-Antarctic waters look nothing like toothfish, so there's a lot of confusing marketing for these fish. Everywhere calls them something different. They're toothfish, we call them bass, Singapore calls them cod, UK calls them ice fish. It was really confusing. Have to say, I was very confused for a while. So there's a lot of confusing marketing for these fish. The thing about Chilean sea bass, specifically the Patagonian toothfish, it got overfished a lot, and there was a lot of illegal fishing of them. Uh, nowadays, the fishing of these fish are restricted to certain fisheries controlled by one organization that read a lot of information. That I'm, I read a lot of information. I'm not going to tell you about because it's not super interesting. I read about how this organization runs its fisheries. I almost put all of it in here, but then I was like, wow, this is really boring and not important. So I left it all out. So look it up yourself if you're curious. Yeah. If you want to know how they control the fishing of the Patagonian toothfish, it's not really hard to find. It's just really not interesting. Uh, but the, the, the certified... They, they, they certify certain people to fish for the Patagonian toothfish. They get checked on annually, and they have to get recertified every five years. So this organization is keeping an eye on people that fish for them. Every five years? Yeah. That doesn't seem like enough. Yeah, but I mean... Unless you're doing something, though. Yeah, it's better than nothing. And they have decreased, this organization decreased illegal fishing by 95%. So wow. they are doing good. Uh, they seem to be handling it pretty well, but they're still getting fished a lot, and I saw one estimate that unless we stop eating the Patagonian toothfish, it could be extinct in five years. Amazing. Also, yeah. So, very soon. And the big thing about, like, this, because I just kind of, the voice in the back of my head just kind of said this to me. It's like, oh, well, I don't eat that, so, like, who cares? But it's like, you also got to think about what does eat it, and how it affects all of those animals, and then all on and on and on. Yeah. Like, like it's going to affect the entire ecosystem. We don't eat that, and maybe we don't eat what relies on it as its food, but somewhere along the line... Just to clarify, we don't eat fish hardly ever. No. At most... And if we do, it's like lobster and like shrimp. And maybe some, like, imitation crab. Yeah. Like... Or, like, yesterday we had sushi and I had a spicy tuna, so I had some And I had some salmon. So, 
But hardly ever do we eat fish. So that that's what Colin means when they say that. Yeah, yeah, we don't eat it. But somewhere along the line of things that rely on it, or rely on things that rely on it, somewhere along the line is probably something that we eat eventually. So if this does go extinct, like, it is going to affect more than just the people who like to eat Chilean sea bass. Like, it's gonna hit everybody eventually. It's not good. Animals going extinct is never good. We all have to eat something. Yeah. Also, apparently, uh, they contain mercury, the Patagonia's toothfish. Uh, so you don't want to eat too much of this fish anyway. Uh, but and that this... kind of reminds me of the fact that women sh- aren't allowed to eat sh- like fish or shellfish when they're pregnant, and it's because of that. Mercury. Yeah. Uh, but this is another one that makes me question the title of this series of episodes, because it's not... I call this illegal foods... It's not illegal, it's just heavily regulated and watched, and it's endangered. Uh, Because only fish caught in certified fisheries are allowed to be imported into the U.S. Doesn't mean that there aren't illegally caught fish being imported into the U.S. I'm sure they have a way of sneaking it in. So, again, this one isn't illegal. I really do think sometimes, I'm like, should I just change the name of this series to... Highly regulated and sometimes illegal foods. I mean, that's not as catchy. It's not. Illegal foods is cool, so I'm going to leave that aside. Um, so now we're on to the last one, which is technically two, but grouped up together because they're pretty much regulated for the exact same thing, which is unpasteurized milk and unpasteurized cheese. My sister's husband worked, um, worked or still works... Um, for, like, a milk place. I'm not going to say the name, just privacy and everything. Um, and I remember, I don't remember what you're talking about, but they brought up in the conversation how, like, the pasteurization and kind of, like, the whole process of milk and milk products um, is disgusting. And if, like, you work with it, you kind of get turned off from anything dairy-wise. And I'm like, I could, I can probably imagine. Yeah. I mean, like, I haven't been drinking dairy. We don't, yeah, we don't drink dairy. We drink the plant alternatives, but we do eat dairy. Yeah, we do eat dairy. But, like, I mean, I love cheese, so yeah. But, like, yeah, I don't know. Something about dairy milk I just don't like anymore. It just isn't good. It's, it it tastes weird. It It does not taste good. It a weird feeling in my mouth. Yeah. So, um, we're going to talk about pasteurization. So... Uh, pasteurization, something I didn't know, it's done to liquids other than milk. I'm a dummy. I didn't realize it's done to more things than milk. Mm-hmm. Uh, that should be obvious, but I never thought about it. So, what is it? Essentially, it's treating a liquid to make it safer and prolong its shelf life. The original main form of pasteurization is subjecting it to heat, usually a little less than 100 degrees Celsius, or up to 212 Fahrenheit, for a period of time. But there are other forms like high-pressure pasteurization, which is just treating the liquid with high pressure, and pulsed electric field, which is using electricity. I almost threw up in my mouth. The reason for pasteurizing milk is it's a good place for microbes and bacteria and pathogens to grow. The CDC says improperly handled milk, raw milk is responsible for nearly three times more hospitalizations than any other foodborne disease source. Wow. 
which makes it one of the most dangerous food products in the world. Raw milk is. Uh, history time. As always, I love to go into the history of these food things for some reason. I uh, it's interesting. I hope you find it interesting. <laughs> this process date back to 1117 AD in China, where they would heat wine to preserve it. Later, there were a couple men in Europe that did more research on this. First, in 1768, Lazzaro Spallanzani, an Italian priest and scientist, proved that you could make something sterile through, through thermal processing. Then, in 1795, Nicholas Appert, a Parisian chef, came up with a way to preserve foods. Uh, he would seal things like soups, juices, vegetables, dairy, and other stuff in jars, and then place the sealed jars in boiling water. He even, some years later, submitted this process to the French military because they were offering 12,000 francs for a method to preserve food. And in 1810... He won that reward money, which hopefully I did my math right. That reward money would be almost eighty-eight thousand dollars in U.S. dollars today. So, That's it? I mean, eighty-eight thousand—that's a pretty good amount. I don't know. I guess you know, helping the military. I mean, to make it sure that the military can eat. Yeah, I feel like I mean that should be worth a little bit more. Yeah. <laughs> he also had La Mason Apert. The House of Appert, which was the first food bottling factory in the world. Also around this time, a British inventor, Peter Duran, in 1810, patented his own method that was essentially the same as Appert's, except the food was put in a tin can, and this led to modern-day canning food. Hmm. However, the tin cans weren't really popular because they had to use a hammer and chisel to open them until uh. in 1855 when Robert Yeats invented the can opener. That was probably, honestly, not really important to know when talking about pasteurization, but it's there. Uh, then, in 1864, a method was developed by the French chemist Louise Pasteur. He experimented and found that if he heated a young wine to about 122 degrees Fahrenheit, Fahrenheit to, like, 140 Fahrenheit, uh, for a short time, it would kill the microbes, and the wine could be aged, and this became known as pasteurization for Louise Pasteur. Talking a lot about some things that aren't really related to milk. Uh, so now milk, as I said, super popular with microbes and bacteria. It's like a breeding ground, especially when left at room temperature. Here's a list of diseases you can get from raw milk. Tuberculosis. Brucellosis, diphtheria, scarlet fever, Q fever, and then some bacteria that can live in milk is salmonella, listeria, yersinia, campylobacter, staphylococcus aureus, E. coli, and others. So a lot of a lot of the big names in there. Um, all of this is prevented and killed by pasteurization. Blah, 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 blah. I repeated myself here. Um, some stats. Between 1912 and 1937, a 25-year time frame, about 65,000 people died from tuberculosis believed to have been contracted from milk. This was in 
just England and Wales. And if you do the math, that's 2,600 people each year. So they think about 2,600 people each year for 25 years die from tuberculosis that they got from ramen. That's insane. Maybe stop drinking it. <laughs> um, to be clear, tuberculosis has a long incubation period and was pretty prevalent back then, so it's not 100% sure or able to prove that all of those cases came from raw milk. But, I mean, even if you assume only half came from raw milk, that's still 1,300 people a year. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, that's still a lot of people. There have been some outbreaks of diseases like E. coli in the past couple decades linked to raw milk. Uh, most of these only led to hospitalizations. Um, there was, like, one outbreak that led to, like, three people dying, I believe. But, for the most part, most of the time, any disease outbreak that's linked to raw milk happens in the past couple decades. It's just hospitalizations. But, I mean, it's still, like, raw milk is still causing problems today modern times. Um, before industrialization, dairy cows would be kept in urban areas so that they could cut down on the time between cow teeth and customer mouth. But as the cities began to grow, it would take longer to deliver, and milk would get to the stores like days old already. Um, so there were, I read, sometimes they'd add extra ingredients to milk to mask the scent and taste of bad milk. That way they could still sell it. So, I mean, you can see why raw milk was such a bad, big problem back then. But in 1947, the uh, states in the U.S. began making mandatory dairy pasteurization laws. And the federal gov government required milk pasteurization in 1973. Which feels way too recent. Like, I feel like mm -hmm. it should have been so much earlier. Yeah. Um... There are, of course, people, I've read articles, I've read people posting online about it. There are still people nowadays who have dairy cows on their farm and they drink raw milk, which is fine, because if you have a dairy cow on your farm and you're drinking the raw milk, you're probably drinking it the day you milk the cow, so it's not dangerous. Raw milk is mainly unsafe when you try to keep it for a long period of time, like a week or something. That's when it starts to be bad. And pasteurization just helps with extending the shelf life of milk, and it helps make milk and cheese much safer for us to eat and drink. I saw one thing that's like regular pasteurized milk. Pasteurizing it can like make milk last a week to three weeks longer than like raw milk. And then there's also a process of like ultra pasteurization that can make it where milk can last up to like three months a lot safer so pasteurization is a real good thing that we came up with for our milk that's it that's everything i researched how do you feel about all of those things it just seems like a bunch of why <laughs> like milk cow's milk is meant for baby cows that's why like, the fact that we had to go through such a giant process of, like, so that we can make it safe during the long travels to the stores, maybe it just shows that, like, hey, don't do that. Yeah. Like, it's made to be consumed immediately by a baby cow. 
not shipped over very long times to humans. Yeah, it seems very odd. Humans already have milk. We have breast milk. We don't need cow's milk. We get the milk when we need it when we're a child. Once you get older, you don't really need it anymore. No. Like, there's a reason. But babies stop breastfeeding. Yeah. Because they get normal human food. Yeah. Like, you can get all the stuff you can get from milk, you mean you can get from other things. Like, milk isn't that important. Only way, reason I like milk is, like, for cheese. And ice cream. And ice cream. Ice cream. So, yeah. All four of those. Uh, Queen Conch was culturally significant, so it's like, okay, that's understandable. Chilean sea bass, I mean, like, we should cut back on eating so much of it. Like, there's other fish. I mean, come on. Foie gras, I don't like. Again, you can sign the petition following the link in the description to help ban it in America. Yeah, milk. I don't get it. I don't get drinking milk. Came up with pasteurization just so we could keep drinking stuff. It's also used on like beer and wine though, so pasteurization has more than just milk, but it's like wine. So that we can get drunk. Not get turned. Rosie. Say goodbye to the podcast. Rosie. I'm trying to get Rosie to say goodbye to you guys, but she did not. So instead, I'll say goodbye. Make sure. You check out Whimsical Formations, Katie's Jaw of Business Shop. You say goodbye, Buster? You say bye bye. Sniff Buster. Mark. Buster, speak. Speak. Okay, licking is fine, I guess. Check out Whimsical Formations. Check out my YouTube. Keep an eye. Keep an eye on this podcast for special stuff next week around Halloween. Uh, and keep an eye out for when I eventually come out with a special project. Uh, you can also find all of our social media in the description. You can follow us if you want. I don't really post on social media much, but if I get a lot of followers, I will. And tell your friends about this podcast. I normally try to say that at the beginning. I forgot. Best thing you can do for a podcast, word of mouth, tell other people about it, share it on social media. Go to Reddit and find a podcast subreddit or a true crime subreddit or something and share this podcast there. Also, we will still do that thing where if you give us a five-star rating and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, However, Apple Podcasts work, iTunes, I don't know. If you leave us a review there, I'll be able to see it and we'll read it during the next episode or whenever we see it. So, that's all I got to say. Buster's groaning into the microphone. And do you have anything else to say, honey? No. All right. Goodbye. We'll see you guys next time. Goodbye. Bye.